Hello. In the last few um, podcasts that I've done, I've been talking about the benefits of volunteering and how it's a different way of getting access to wildlife, but in many ways um, a, a more kind of personal, more unique way of getting access to wildlife. And in this one, I wanted to talk a little bit about my first real experience of that, which was back in 1993. And that was when I did an Earthwatch project uh, helping some researchers who were working off a small island off the Dampier Archipelago, which is um, uh, roughly two-thirds up the, uh, the west coast of Australia. And uh, that was Kurt and Mitch Jenner. And at the time, they were in their second season, I think it was, of doing humpback whale research in the area. They just got married. They so were recently married. And really a few things leapt out at me from that whole experience. First of all, it was just great getting to know them and spending time with them because there were um, six of us on uh, an island for two weeks. So there was Kurt and Mitch and four volunteers. So um, I was there. There was a, a lady from um, the UK who was with them for a few uh, months or two, I think, um, a lady from Australia and a guy from uh, the, the States. And we basically helped out. We um, would go out, four of us, in their small rib. The rib is a, a rigid hull inflatable boat, so it's one of the smaller uh, boats. And um, the other two people would stay on the island and do work that had to be done on the island. So I got paired with Kurt, and when the other guys were out, um, photographing whales, observing behaviour, and I'll talk about what they were doing in a moment, uh, we would be, uh, I remember one day we went out fishing <laughs> to try and catch uh, dinner. And um, to cut that story short, we finished up eating some of the canned food that night. So we didn't do terribly well. And um, we did also nip out and dig a new latrine because it was uh, pretty basic living there. So the reason I'm sharing this story is that it was a great opportunity to spend you know, two weeks is a long time to spend with a couple of people and look at them doing what they're passionate about, which was finding out about humpback whales. And the reason they were there was that at that time, so back in 1993, nobody really knew where the carving grounds were. So if you're not familiar, humpback whales are uh, baleen whales and they have um, a migratory path and a migratory pattern. So in broad terms, they spend the uh, this southern hemisphere populations, they spend the summer in Antarctica where they will generally be feeding. And because they're feeding and defecating, they're kind of feeding their own ecosystem a little bit. But then at the, um, uh, the uh, end of the summer, they will begin to head north and they'll go past, in fact, they go either side of Australia. So they're actually uh, slightly different populations that go... Uh, one goes up the west coast, which is the group that I was interested in on that occasion, and the other group goes up the east coast and also um, includes New Zealand in their migration. And what they do, they get up to warmer water, the sort of tropical, subtropical water, and that's where they carve and they, um, they mate and they have that whole cycle there. And one of the reasons they do that is that when the calves are born, they don't have any blubber or very little so they can't be born in colder water. It'd be very difficult for them to survive. So they go up there to um, have their calves, and then obviously the calves can survive 
in that warmer water. And often during the migration, the whales don't feed very much. There's opportunistic feeding. And I was reading recently about some humpback whales being seen bubble fishing um, near Sydney, which is, um, I think, only twice in about 20 years that's been observed. And bubble fishing is where they will get underneath um, a large group of fish and they will swim in a circle underneath the fish while they exhale. And obviously that puts out what develops into a curtain of bubbles around these fish. So it hems them in to this, this curtain of bubbles. And then one of the whales will go up through the middle of the, uh, the curtain of bubbles and basically, basically with its mouth open and, and get a, a mouthful that way. So that's one of the ways they feed. But generally on the migration, they're not feeding very much. And one of the things I've observed, and, and people who do a lot of whale watching will have observed, that is that when they see the whales coming south again at the end of the, um, the migration, as they're heading back to Antarctic waters for the summer, they're noticeably thinner than they were on the way up. So you can see the vertebrae in their back much more clearly. So anyway, the, the reason that Kurt and Mitch were in this place, Enderby Island, is where they were located at the time, is that nobody knew where the population that went up the west coast of Australia actually carved. They didn't know where the carving grounds were. So what Kurt and Mitch were doing was really to try and identify individual whales and work out where they were going. And the way that was done back then, so we had a GPS, but it was a very early version. So you kind of got to think back that things were nowhere near as automated and sophisticated as they are now. Um, so we would take, we would physically be making notes in the boat about the time of day. We'd jot down the GPS position. We'd write down what, what behaviors we were observing. And the photo identification sequence was essentially us trying to get either side of the whale so that we could photograph the dorsal fin from both sides because the dorsal fins in humpbacks tend to vary quite a lot in their shape. And also we would try and get behind the whale so that we had a good, a good view of the underside of the flute, that's the tail, as it lifted up when the whale dived down. So that was pretty critical because the, um, the fluke in particular is, is very key in identifying an individual whale. And then all of these photographs and the observational data and the timing and all of that stuff would be sent into a database, which was a worldwide database of whales. And then these individuals would be laboriously kind of compared with other observations to see if they could identify a particular whale out of all of these hundreds of whales that were being photographed to start to plot where they were at different times and to give some idea of what their range was, did, did the different populations intermix and all this stuff. So that was essentially what we were there for. And the reason that I mentioned this is that as my first experience doing this kind of volunteering, it was a real eye-opener for me because I, I don't know, I, I very glibly thought that we knew most of what we needed to know about most animals. And in fact, that's in many ways couldn't be further from the truth. We're learning all the time. And um, I was even reading a, a comment from Kurt recently because um, Kurt and Mitch are still doing research. They actually have their, no, their own um, ice rated vessel now so they can uh, uh, range uh, in a much wider area and they've been down to Antarctica a number of times and uh, they, they're, they're very heavily involved still in whale research but they're, they're also um, really highly regarded so back in uh, 2017 
they received a lifetime of conservation award from um, Australian Geographic. And then in the 2018 uh, New Year's Honours list, they uh, were both awarded uh, members or both became members of the Order of Australia. So that's a huge accolade for their work. And, And the comment that Kurt made was after 30 years of doing humpback whale research, he was still learning things. And I think that's really the big thing about volunteering. So bringing it back to the benefits of volunteering is that everybody's learning, even the scientists or the people who are leading the uh, the research. The reason they're researching is that we're still always trying to find out more. It may be about the habits of the animal. It might be um, where they go. Um, it might be the impact of environmental changes on them. And things like humpback whales, they're important because they're at the top of their particular food chain. They, they in one sense, are in the top of their environment. So what happens to them in terms of their health has it gives clues about what's happening to everything else below them. Because obviously, if you have um, the, the sort of bottom of the, the food chain suffers, that ripples all the way up to the top. So by observing these top predators, if their numbers begin to decline, well, there are good reasons for that. And it may, it may not be the most obvious thing. It could well be that something is happening further down the food chain, and that's then affecting everything above that particular animal. So that was, that was one of the things. So it was a real eye-opener for me to begin to get some idea of just how little we knew about humpback whales at that time. And we know an awful lot now, we know a lot more now, and and a good deal of that is due to the work that Kurt and Mitch have done in in their lives, in their careers. So um, I'm I'm really proud to have been a very, very small part of um, helping them through volunteering, particularly at such an early stage in their research, because I feel in, in a small way I've contributed to um, helping them along along their way, as has everybody else who has volunteered with them. And I know that there's quite a lot of people have volunteered with them. And um, uh, we had a really good time. And they're, they're a great couple, lovely people. And uh, um, I, I bumped into them again when I was riding around Australia in uh, 97. I was, uh, I'd actually got to Perth and um, had gone down to Fremantle and was wandering around the boatyards or just past them. And then I saw a boat there that I recognised from photographs, it was a boat called Whale Song, and it was actually a catamaran they'd built themselves. And I remembered it because I was still in touch with them um, while they were building the boat and had contributed a little bit of money to, to go towards it. So I just wandered into the boatyard and um, walked around to Whale Song and said hello, kind of called hello, and uh, Kurt was on board and it was brilliant. I went on board, had a chat to him. Mitch was out with the, um, they had, they got two two girls who were quite young at the time back then. And um caught up for them for uh, dinner a few a day or two later which was just lovely so it, it's really nice to have those connections with people who are not only great people to be around anyway but they're really pushing forward the boundaries of our knowledge and understanding of the natural world so that's one of the the big thrills i think of volunteering you never know who you're going to meet you never know who you're going to meet excuse me and the impact that they're going to have through their work in, in their area and also more generally in, in how we how we understand these different animals. So I thought I'd just spend a few minutes telling you a little bit more about what we were doing on the island as well, uh, or sharing a bit more of the experience. So I can't show you a picture of it, but basically Enderby at the time 
was uninhabited. It was um, just left. It was actually a reserved area. You couldn't just stroll up and, you know, park your boat and go off and do a bit of fishing or whatever you wanted to do. It was restricted access. And there was one building um, on the island, and that was our um, kind of home office. So it was a... Um, I'm just trying to, I guess it was kind of rectangular and you'd go in at one end of the rectangle, one of the, the smaller sides. And in there we had some workbenches. There was a refrigerator, I believe, was inside. And that was where we would do work with the, um, well, very early PCs that we were using back then. Outside we had a generator and there was a pergola around the whole of the building and that's where our beds were. So we would sleep out in the, the open. So it was like sleeping on a veranda, if you like, that, that kind of thing. And um, that, that was actually great fun. Somebody, I think one of the people did actually pull their bed outside the veranda so they could just sleep under the stars in some degree of comfort. And I got a feeling it rained that night. But anyway, we, we had that kind of opportunity though. It was really nice to be in that environment. And then we would go for walks around the island if we weren't working. We, did, we, usually, we were usually out every day, but there were days where we couldn't go. Uh, out because the uh, the winds would get up a little bit and it was a, it was a little bit sheltered where we were in the islands because it's an archipelago so that uh, obviously means that there were other islands around and um, we would just head out in the rib we would actually have that parked a little way offshore it was um, tied up to a buoy and we'd have a, a a tinny an aluminium kind of rowboat that we would use and that that simply meant we wouldn't bring the rib all the way in because we had an outboard motor and um, because it was quite shallow, uh, quite a shallow beach, we didn't want to get the outboard into the uh, the ground. So we would tend to use the uh, tinny. So Kurt would be in charge of rowing usually. And um, he always said he was very toned at the end of a, a research season. Um, so that was the kind of environment we were in. And um, we had fresh water, but it was only used for drinking. So everything else, washing the dishes, washing ourselves, we did with salt water. And I remember going to get salt water soap before I, I went over to Australia to volunteer. And I have to say, I don't know if you've ever used salt water soap. Uh, my experience of it is it leaves you feeling very sticky. And um, so for two weeks, basically, I felt very sticky every time I washed. When we did finally complete the uh, two weeks and it was a great time I mean it was just such an amazing experience uh, Kurt Mitch took us back to the mainland so we we went to uh, Dampier and um, I remember going to the airport because I was flying off somewhere else after that and the, the um, three of us I think were leaving at the same time if I remember correctly and we were all at the airport at um, I think it's Karatha Carrather Airport. So it's a tiny little airport in, in the northwest of Australia. It's, it's more built up now because in the 2000s with the mining boom, when China started buying a lot of um, iron ore from um, Australia, that whole area is all about iron ore. And um, I think I'm right in saying Dampier was a closed town at the time. So if you didn't work for, um, I think it was Hemsley Iron Ore, uh, you, you weren't even allowed in the town. It was, it was just that sort of setup. So very heavily involved in mining, but quite a small town. So the airport was very small, and I do remember the three of us went off to the airport because we were flying off to wherever we were going after that. Because from uh, that, that area, you fly down to Perth usually, and then you've got, you've got connections elsewhere. But we took it in turns to have a shower, and we had, I tell you, this is the best shower of my life because um, after two weeks of uh, feeling constantly sticky and um, 
washing in seawater. It was just something else to be in a nice hot shower and be able to uh, just feel really clean again. And um, all of us had really long showers and the other people would be just sat outside looking after our, our bags and things. So that was that was quite fun. So anyway, that that's really, I guess, what I wanted to share on this one. It's a, a shorter podcast than um, some of the others that I've recorded. But I think, I guess I wanted to share a little bit more about my passion for volunteering and why I think it is such a great way of um, experiencing something else. So obviously you can volunteer for all sorts of things. It might be wildlife, it could be conservation, it could be um, teaching of some sort. Um, I might, certainly from the people I've spoken to, I, I think most people I've spoken to have volunteered have had a really good time. And it's uh, been an eye-opener for them in different ways, not only in what they've learned, but maybe in things they've done. They've done things they wouldn't normally do. They've learned things about themselves in the process. So I do uh, def most definitely recommend that as something to think about. And as I've said, it's if you do volunteer and you're helping in an area that's doing research, you could well be contributing through your observations and maybe insights or anything that occurs to you that, that helps scientists, um, you can be contributing in your small way to helping us, us as a, a community and as a, uh, an international community understand more about the world around us. So I'm going to stop talking now. It's um, a little bit shorter than the previous ones, but hopefully that's given you a bit of food for thought. You can find out more about what I do as a wildlife photographer and um um, and also supporting conservation on the website. So that's www.creativephotographyacademy.com. Um, there's uh, a lot there. That's mostly about training, but if you, you there's also a little bit about my um, uh, wildlife um, photography and the uh, prints that I do from wildlife. And then some of the proceeds are going to support a couple of projects at the moment. So one of them is the HRA in Namibia, which is Elephant Human Relations Aid. And the other one uh, right now is um, Half Cut, which is a, uh, a group based in Sydney who are buying up chunks of the Daintree Rainforest. And basically once they're bought, the, that, those areas of those parcels of land are not developed any further. So um, Jimmy Stanton Cook runs all of that with his partner and they, those guys do an amazing job. They're great people, really enthusiastic, and they're, they're doing their best to preserve um, our ancient rainforest, which is, again is another amazing environment, but it's unfortunately in many areas uh, just being wantonly destroyed and uh, it's, it's just a real shame. So there you go, just um, some thoughts to leave you with. I hope you have a great day, whatever you're going, whatever you're doing rather, and um, I will speak to you again in another podcast. Bye for now. Just before I go, I wanted to let you know that there's a couple of ways you can support me if you feel so inclined. Uh, with the podcast, Buzzsprout, which is the um, the platform I use for all of my podcasts, they have a subscription model. So if you feel that you would like to subscribe, a few dollars, a few euros, whatever, um, to the podcast, that would be much appreciated. The other option is my Patreon membership. So if you'd like to become a patron, and that starts at the price of a cup of coffee every month, you'll get access to exclusive material, behind-the-scenes material, photography tips, all this kind of stuff, depending on which tier you're at. So there is some information available through my website and um, also on the, uh, uh, the written text to go with this podcast. So 
if you choose either one, thank you so much in advance. And whether or not you do, I hope you uh, continue to enjoy the podcasts and let other people know about them. Thank you very much. Bye for now. Thank you.